0: Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, humans, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Around the globe, about 2.5 billion people currently need some type of corrective eyewear but don't have access to them. More than headache-inducing, the state of affairs prevents 624 million individuals from being able to learn or work effectively due to the severity of their visual impairment. My two guests today, Neil Blumenthal, co-founder and co-CEO of Warby Parker, and Ellie Goodwin of Vision Spring, aim to correct that through their partnership, which has been underway since 2011. Eyeglasses purveyor Warby Parker and accessibility-focused nonprofit Vision Spring endeavor to ensure that for every pair of glasses purchased, a pair is distributed to someone in need. And Warby Parker also provides a lot more substantial financial support to that community in need and to Vision Springs in particular. To date, over 7 million pairs of glasses have been distributed through the program. Neil and Ella, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Can we talk a little bit about the founding of Warby Parker? I mean, there's a lot of lore. There's a little bit of myth around it. But why don't you tell us the real story?
1: Well, like any good business... We started it to solve our own problem. So my co-founder, Dave, had lost a $700 pair of glasses in the seat pocket of an airplane. He had been working at a merchant bank so he could afford $700 glasses. And now he was a graduate student along with me. We were classmates at Wharton getting our MBAs. And we started talking about it. And we were with two of our other close friends, Jeff and Andy. And Andy posited the question why aren't glasses sold online? This was back in winter of 2008 when Zappos was growing really quickly and people thought that shoes could never be sold online and Blue Nile was growing really quickly and people initially thought that engagement rings and fine jewelry could never be sold online. So he thought, well, why can't glasses be sold online? And similarly, Jeff had an old pair of glasses that desperately needed to be refreshed, but he wasn't about to do it because it was so expensive. We had all had that experience walking to an optical shop, getting excited about a pair of glasses and walking out, feeling like somebody had ripped us off. Prior to business school, I had spent five years running a nonprofit that would train low-income women to start their own businesses, giving vision tests and selling glasses in their communities in rural areas, in India and Bangladesh and parts of sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. And in doing so, I visited a bunch of factories to produce glasses for people living on less than $4 a day. And in these factories, off of the same production lines, I would see some of the biggest names in fashion being produced. So... I knew that there was a disconnect between what it costs to manufacture a pair of glasses and what they were being sold for. And the four of us having this conversation, the light bulbs just went off. And being at Wharton, one of the world's best business schools, we were able to explore this idea and talk to our friends and get their feedback as we wrote a
0: business plan and ended up launching it in spring 2010. So... You should just note that 2008 was the last kind of great recession for different reasons. So you're thinking of this actually launching a business in a recession, even though you officially launched two years later. But I think some of the best businesses were launched in the most constraining of times and economic environments. Absolutely. Constraints breed creativity. Not to
1: mention that economic downturns focus you to think about value. We wanted to save money. Who wants to pay four or $500 for a pair of glasses? So we thought that we could design beautiful glasses that were the same quality as four or $500 pairs, but sell them for $95. And the magic was just simple business strategy. We were going to cut out the middleman instead of designing glasses and wholesaling those glasses to retailers who then have to mark them up three to five times in order to make their margin. We were just going to bypass the middleman and sell them direct to consumers. Through warbyparker.com, through a website. That was the magic of the internet. It was that it would enable businesses and brands in particular to have direct relationships with customers. And when you have a direct relationship with a customer, you're able to save them money because there are less hands in the cookie jar. You're able to know your customers better so you can deliver better customer service. Just overall, it's a more quality experience from the quality of the product to the quality of the service.
0: You said it better than I do, just as someone who's not close to the brand, but is a fanboy as I'm, I'm wearing your glasses and I've got like eight pairs. I feel like it's a trifecta because you have savings for the consumer without sacrificing quality. At the same time, you also have a very cool fashion aesthetic where you're not overreaching, but it's you're keeping in times with fashion, whether it's at home or in the office or somewhere in between. And the final point, and I think that brings us to this buy a pair, give a pair, is that you have a heart, you have a soul, you have life, you care for your community and our global communities based on your experience and working abroad and seeing others in need and living in the margin and how important glasses are to others. So I think having those three things, even though it sounds simple, you work really hard and you nail it on those three things and you have a great fucking business. Thank you. When we were discussing what we wanted to build, the question kept
1: coming back to what did we want as consumers? And then what would motivate us to go to work every day? And while selling glasses is great, what really motivates us every day is to have positive impact. So we thought that it was an inherent good to lower the price of glasses in the US from four or $500 to $95 frames plus prescription lenses. But even at $95, we knew that there were still hundreds of millions of people around the world that didn't have glasses, didn't have the tools they needed to see clearly and live productively. So we thought that, hey, how do we serve those people? And one thought was, let's provide a percent of revenue or provide cash to solve this problem, which is definitely positive. But we knew that if we weren't running the company, perhaps sometime in the future, a percent of revenue that could be manipulated, that could be lowered, increased. And ultimately, what were we trying to accomplish? We wanted to ensure that people had glasses on their faces so that way they could learn, they could earn a livelihood, they can reach their full potential. So that's why when we were putting together the business plan for Warby Parker, we committed to provide a pair of glasses for every pair that we sell. And we've tried to do that in a thoughtful way, whether that is to go into schools and provide eye exams and provide a selection of frames for students to choose from. So that way, they have agency in the process and they have a pair of glasses that they've chosen that they'll be more likely to wear. That's why we've partnered with the nonprofit that I used to run, Vision Spring, our primary partner who trains entrepreneurs all around the world to start their own businesses, giving vision tests and selling affordable glasses in their communities that creates an incentive to ensure that people in these communities have access to glasses. And it's a sustainable model that for every pair of glasses that they provide to somebody, it helps them reach one more person as opposed to sort of a zero-sum game where perhaps if it was just pure free distribution, for every pair that you distribute, that's one less that you can provide to somebody
0: else. Well, and your point is so spot on. It's not to take away from other companies and brands who are like, hey, every time you buy this, this pair of goggles or glasses, or you buy this pair of pants, a 10% or a portion of our profits goes to XYZ. I have no idea how much they're actually giving to those charities. It's just intangible. And I'm sure it's something, but there's a lot of room for manipulation, like you say, in that model. So you're venture funded, right? We are. We bootstrapped the business
1: ourselves to start. So when we launched, we had put our life savings into the business. Well, you had that merchant bank guy, right? The fancy glasses. So <laughs> <laughs> that was helpful. Exactly. We, we literally started Warby Parker with $120,000. We actually started it with $100,000. We each committed to put in $25,000 each. But then we also said, hey, if the company would need it, we'd each put an incremental $5,000 each. So 25,000 plus 5,000, 30,000 times the four of us, we got to $120,000. And that allowed us to get to some proof of concept, launch the business. We were super scrappy, as you mentioned. There was a global recession going on, certainly benefited us from sort of low cost to start the business, but also had that mentality if we kept costs low, we would be able to deliver more savings to customers. And it wasn't until about a year into operating the business that we then raised outside capital, and we did so through some of the biggest names
0: in venture. And the reason why I ask, although that's an incredible story, I mean, I started my own business. I had like I found like old Triple E bar mitzvah bonds from 1983 or something. <laughs> like, well, those are worth something finally, 20 years later, but. Was the buy a pair, give a pair program always part of the business model? And if it was, what was the reaction of the venture partners? I'm just kind of curious when you presented it to them early on. So it was always part of Warby Parker. We always viewed Warby Parker from
1: pre-launch to launch to now sort of a scaled business. As a social enterprise, I was going to do good in the world. And the primary way that we do that is providing a pair through our buy a pair, give a pair program we surprisingly didn't get much pushback from investors. Now, of course, by the time we were raising capital, we had already launched. We had proof of concept. We had a waiting list of 40,000 people. We had gotten all these articles written about us. The brand was resonating. The product was resonating. We had product market fit. So I wonder if we would have gotten more questions had we raised money pre-launch. On the same token, we're for Wharton MBA. So if there's one thing that we can do is make a great
0: spreadsheet and make a financial model, it's quite compelling. <laughs> and a good pitch deck, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And before I forget, you mentioned Zappos. And as we're recording this a few weeks ago, their founder, Tony Shee, had passed and may his memory always be for a blessing because that was awful. And he is somebody who did set out. While he didn't necessarily have social enterprise at the core of his business, customer service in and of itself was almost a social enterprise. He completely transformed customer service, especially for a digitally native brand as we know it today. Absolutely. And Dave and I had the privilege to get to know Tony
1: a bit, and he was just a super kind individual and incredibly thoughtful. We also I feel like we might have been one of the number one buyers of his book, Delivering Happiness, because we gave it to so many of our employees over the years and it no doubt did influence the way that we conduct our customer service and influenced from day one. We had sort of free shipping, free returns, and Zappos was really the first to do that and be so loud about it.
0: For sure. So, Ella, how did you and Neil meet?
2: I joined Vision Spring in 2015. So, Neil was one of my very first meetings. And I was coming out of the international development sector, been working in development for 20 years. But I had been watching Vision Spring because Vision Spring was at the forefront of social entrepreneurship. And it was at a time when Vision Spring was first founded, it was a time when a lot of organizations were looking at alternative ways to. Improve livelihoods and health outcomes in a non charitable fashion. And Vision Spring had adopted that model from the very beginning.
0: And is Warby Parker the primary sponsor of Vision Spring and funder? Or are there others involved as well?
2: Oh, there are others involved. So Warby is one of our most important contributors and most strategic, but there are others who have been on the journey with us for a long time as well. But I think what's unique about Warby Parker and VisionSpring is the duration of the partnership. So we're over 10 years working together. And a lot of people think that Warby Parker is giving VisionSpring physical product, and that's not the case. So Warby Parker contributes in a financial way that honors the buy a pair, give a pair promise. But I used to work with an organization that focused on medical commodity assistance. And I can tell you that Donating a product is not as strategic as donated the financial resources that allow an organization to fulfill its mission and vision, because we need so much more than product. And to be able to get glasses on faces requires screening. It requires getting permissions with the government. It requires IT infrastructure. It requires so many things. And from the beginning, Warby has really understood that they're backing the strategy as well as the service provision. And so Warby contributes financial resources, not the physical asset of the physical glass.
0: So just to put this into perspective for our listeners, the cumulative impact of your partnership has enabled the distribution of close to 7 million eyeglasses. You've reached 43 countries. You've been able to capture productivity increases of 22 to 32% based on this partnership. Income increases by 20%. And you're saying that there's been an economic impact of about $1.4 billion. That's unbelievable. And actually, your partnership, well, correct me if I'm wrong, Neil and Ella, but the partnership started in 2011. Ella joined in 2015. So this is over nine years, but those are some incredible numbers.
1: It's exciting. I mean, if you could come up with a solution that increases people's income 20%, that's frankly a miracle. And glasses are a miracle. Vision Springs strategy creates miracles.
2: It is a little miracle. So when you take your glasses off, and I encourage anybody who's listening who has glasses, you take them off and you wonder what it would be like to get through your day. And if you're a child that can't see the blackboard, maybe you got your glasses when you were young, what would your educational outlook and your economic outlook look like for your lifetime had you not had the opportunity to have glasses wherever you got them? The majority of children find that they need glasses between the ages of eight and 14. One of the things that happens for adults is we get blurry at a near distance, presbyopia, and it's a moment where people are mastering their craft. They're master weavers and they're master tailors, and they are farmers who need to sort their seeds. And it's at that moment where they're really truly at the peak of their capability, and then that vision is blurring. And With this simple 700-year-old technology, you can gain that 20% bump in productivity and the increases in income that come with it. And so one of the things that brought me to VisionSpring and what makes me so excited about the partnership with Warby Parker is that there are so few tools available in the international development sector that are affordable and that are scalable. And this is a problem that we can solve. There are a lot of problems that are really intractable, but not vision.
0: Oh, for sure. There's no doubt. And it also sounds like this partnership is endemic to each other's organizations. It's not just like a lot of companies, they either write checks or like Neil said earlier, just donate glasses or donate product, but that in and of itself is not enough. But this is a true partnership and one that's enduring. And you just don't see that very often, not in this way.
2: I think that's a testament to it's like a lot of relationships. It's built on a lot of communication. So if you don't mind, I'll share a little bit of the nuts and bolts of kind of how we get through the average year. This year is not an average year. So we go through strategic planning processes each year. We talk about the areas where we want to grow. I think one of the amazing things about Warby's support is they have backed some of our riskier initiatives where we really weren't sure in terms of how it was going to go. And they said, just keep us posted and let's see And then we check in every month and we dialogue about our progress. But I think as people are looking at how do you build a high-functioning relationship, it's the formal and the informal that matters. So we have a contract, we have performance-based targets, we have monthly dialogues, and we troubleshoot together. And that's all that open communication is really what makes it work over time. And it's that open communication that allowed us to pivot together really quickly in April.
0: I should have asked this earlier. Why is it called Warby Parker?
1: The name comes from two early Jack Kerouac characters, Warby Pepper and Zag Parker. And in our minds, the brand behind Warby Parker has the ethos of writers. Writers can change and impact culture and the world. And that's what we hope to do with Warby Parker. We actually discovered these early Kerouac characters at a exhibit at the new york public library and if you go into any of our stores you might feel some of the elements that were inspired by the new york public library whether it's the shelving system that's inspired by book stacks some of our stores have library lamps in it or rolling ladders but you'll often see a bunch of books as well, and of course, there's an inherent link between glasses and vision and reading and learning.
0: And you have what about 100 retail locations now? I know it's a different time with retail, but you've got about 100 stores now. We'll uh, have about 130
1: by the end of the year.
0: That's crazy! That's amazing. And I have to say, I give you a lot of props when you walk in. Like my experience is the Greenwich store; it's near my house, and you walk in, everybody's like super happy. It's like when Jeff Blue first started; everyone who worked there was really happy. I'm not saying this is like the airline industry, but like there's a warmth and a (laughs) happiness. No, but it's so accessible and so easy. It's not stressful. It's almost fun. And typically shopping for eyeglasses before that, whether it's online or in-person or hybridized, it's not usually fun. You guys have made it fun and feel good.
1: So we measure performance against customer satisfaction and we use net promoter score, which is a measure of customer satisfaction. We use it religiously and we measure it constantly. We measure performance against that and ensure that our team is aligned towards making customers happy. And one of the things that also helps us attract and retain great talent, frankly, is our social mission. People that are smart and committed and are capable of delivering Mm -hmm. exceptional customer service want to work for a company that has positive impact, that partners with great social enterprises like Vision Spring. So while it might not be the number one reason why customers buy from us, it's the number one reason why people work for us.
0: So, Ella, Neil talked a little bit about the experience of getting glasses, at least from a commercial standpoint, whether it is through your app, online, or in-store. I think it's also important to hear from you what that experience is like for those who are marginalized, who don't have access, but who need access, which is obviously it cuts to the very heart of the partnership between Vision Spring and Warby Parker.
2: Yeah, thanks for that. So there's two elements here. One is from a traditional nonprofit and charity point of view, people often think about giving something to somebody and you approach the person as a beneficiary. And in that instance, there's no accountability to that person. And then sometimes there's actually quite a horrible expectation that the person will be grateful. And Vision Spring is a social enterprise and we really value the customer experience. And so VisionSpring approaches all of the people who get glasses whether it's free or not or whether they're paying a small subsidized price as a customer. And getting your vision screen, it can be a little intimidating. You've got the device that comes on your face. It doesn't feel very friendly sometimes, sort of as you had said. So we actually created a brand called Chamakarechshma or which is The wonder of its wonder glasses. So chamakari chashma is in Hindi, and then wonder glasses is the translation. And it is that miracle of getting vision that the wonder of clear vision, and it's bright and it's colorful. And we don't focus on the flashlight that's getting shined in your eye to do the eye exam. We focus on the experience that's going to come afterwards, which is the ability to thread your needle on your own, the ability to read your holy text, whether it's a Quran or a Bible, the ability to sit and tell stories with your grandchildren or to come back to work. And so we have counselors as well because most people are getting glasses for the first time. So 74% of the people in our vision camps are getting their very first pair of glasses. And so we have to tell people, it's a little bit like a new pair of shoes. It takes a couple of days to get used to. When you clean your glasses, don't rub them on, your beautiful sorry because you'll scratch it. And we really focus on the experience of getting glasses. Because we want people to be able to come back. Because once you're in glasses, you're going to need glasses for your lifetime.
0: This is a silly question, but are there certain instances where you have to explain what glasses are to people because they've never seen them before?
2: People have seen them before, but they think that they are for the elite, they think they're for the learned, and they think they're for the upper class. So we did a focus group, for example, in Uganda when we were actually replicating a huge program in Bangladesh, which Neil had actually helped to get started back in 2006, that program has now delivered 1.5 million pairs of glasses to people in their communities through community health workers. So we were sitting in community in Uganda asking people, what if we told you glasses could be $3.50? And I said, no, glasses are $70. And we said, no, they don't have to be that expensive. And then we said, well, what would you think if your friend and your neighbor was wearing glasses? And they would say, Oh, that person was above their station. That person was pretending to be more than they are. And so there was this perception of, Oh, that's not for me. But what happens very quickly is once somebody gets their glasses, it's like, Oh, that miracle of I can see happens. And then I think one of my favorite stories was a woman who came and she said, I am being called madam now, or being called ma'am. And there was a pride in that. But I think people very quickly, Once they're wearing glasses, it's for everybody. Glasses are for everybody. They're not a luxury product. They're a commodity, and everybody should be able to have them.
0: It's so interesting because I understand the functionality, the form, the style, the design, the need behind glasses, living, being a very, very privileged cisgender white male. But I hadn't thought of it in terms of what it says about you in developing countries or those who are in need or marginalized and how it impacts how others perceive you, and largely for good, obviously, because there's probably also a little bit of a trust factor that also comes along with wearing glasses, not only because you're gonna perform better in your job or in your life, but also because of that perception that, well, if they're wearing glasses, they must be a person of prominence or high intellect, like you said, or learned. I hadn't thought of that.
2: Yeah, I think the harder ones are myths around glasses making eyes weaker, About 33% of the people that we talk to in Bangladesh believe that. So there's some education there about age-related blurry vision, that it will get worse over time regardless, that glasses can correct that. And then the big one for women and girls in particular is that eyeglasses somehow make you less marriable, that it is a sign of some kind of physical defect. And so we do quite a bit of work with parents and teachers to be able to overcome that.
0: I wouldn't have even thought about those other kind of variables. And I imagine those are actually very large social and cultural stigmas to get over. And it's not as easy as just saying, no, no, that's not true. Do you draw on others within these communities to help spread that message? So it's not just coming from you, which is less credible, but it's coming from their peers and their colleagues?
2: hundred percent. So it doesn't come from us. There will be union leaders. There will be imams in the mosque. There will be, when we're working, for example, in a garment factory We will identify women to be what we call vision champions, and their job is to create a supportive environment for wearing glasses. So we create the content and we create the delivery for behavior change communication, and then we identify others who are actually sharing those messages.
0: I don't know if you can answer this, but as we kind of enter this, God willing, this era of vaccination here in the United States and around the world, do you think that they're going to have similar issues? In countries like Uganda, where there's misperceptions around vaccines, or have they kind of leapfrogged that because they've seen the power of vaccines help save so many lives in some of these countries?
2: Well, our biggest team is in India, as an example. And the polio vaccine has been unbelievably successful there. And so there was such a huge public effort to basically eradicate polio in India. And that is in most people's near and recent memory, right? So there's a living memory of a vaccine being successful, eliminating it and controlling a disease. The anti-vaxxer, there's a real machine in the United States that generates the anti, and it's highly organized.
0: Thanks, Ella. Neil, going back to you now. You started the company, or at least founded it with, there's four of you. Two of you remained, you and your co-founder, co-CEO, Dave Gilboa. Did I say his name correctly? You did. Okay. One of them went on to found Harry's and another's a venture guy. But all of you remain on the board and you probably all remain friends. How did you pull that off? Because it doesn't always work like that. And I say this because I just watched the Beastie Boys documentary. I think it was on Netflix, which if you're a Beastie Boys fan, you'll love. And a lot of it had to do with trust, respect, friendship in the ups and downs. And I imagine it's probably quite similar to your experience.
1: Warby Parker's really built on that trust and that friendship, and we made it a priority. In fact, when we committed to each other that we were going to do this thing and start a business, the first promise that we made to each other is that we're going to remain friends throughout the process, because we had all heard those horror stories of founders that went on to start great businesses, but quickly became enemies. And... Obviously, making commitments, one thing, carrying through is another, but we put mechanisms in place, whether it was literally check-ins with each other to see how you're doing, how on an individual basis could we all be doing better, are we communicating, and are there issues underneath the surface, and creating mechanisms to have those discussions preempted any major fallouts or issues, and then, of course, having the four of us on the board, is just one of many different gatherings that we have because we continue to be close friends and still love talking about business, still love talking about anything imaginable. But it's, to your point, very much about trust and respect. And I value every time one of those guys say something, there's something interesting coming out of their mouth that I want to listen to.
0: So we have a surprisingly large number of younger people, strangely enough, listening to this podcast. I don't count my 19 and 16-year-olds as part of that. I don't think they listen to this at all. But often the question is kind of these founder stories and what are these journeys and how did you end up being able to fulfill your own personal mission and vision? And for you, Neil, in between undergrad and graduate school, you worked for Vision Spring for five years and you never forgot about Vision Spring. You brought it back into the fold of Warby Parker to make it a core part of who Warby Parker is. And Ella, you spent cumulatively in different periods of your life, some time in Indonesia, some time living and working in an authoritative regime and also through times of economic uncertainty. I just want to ask you both how that has also shaped. I mean, with Neil, this is your only job. Technically, this is your second job. Good job, by the way. You're like one for one or two for two, but like as far as I know, this is your only job that you've ever had. You're still a youngish man, way younger than me. So how is it that those early decisions and putting yourself in less comfortable situations has impacted your view on the world and how you can give back?
1: I think there's this misperception that most entrepreneurs start businesses out of their dorm rooms when they're in their early 20s or even their late teens. And that's just not the case, especially when you look at the data, the majority of businesses started in America are started by people in their 30s and 40s.
0: Except for Mark Zuckerberg. He did actually start in the group, but you're right. Most don't.
1: Right. <laughs> and that's a great financial success. We can talk about their other impacts another time. But at the end of the day, I think for people to have professional success, they need to figure out what drives them personally and when does that overlap with their strengths and their skill set and where that intersects is where people should focus their careers and when you're in your late teens or early 20s very few people are self-aware to know a lot about what they're passionate about Or even know their strengths and weaknesses, let alone have developed some skills. So I always encourage people to start that professional journey and try to focus on those two things. And hopefully, good things come of it. How about you, Ella?
2: Yeah, I think the element of curiosity, the drive to continually learn is so important. And I would say the, early years of me being in Indonesia, I went in 1995, when it was still under Suharto, who was an authoritarian dictator. And I went because it was the furthest place that I could get funding to go to learn about women's rights and reproductive health. And I just thought I never might have the opportunity to do that again. And it started this extraordinary journey. And it was being able to take a step into the unknown. I think the other thing is there's so much stress to try to figure out a career path. And that's so unpredictable. And so if you look at my resume backwards, it looks really linear. But when I was living it, it did not feel linear. And so I think there's that element, which is to be able to also trust your instinct a little bit. Don't join an organization for the organization at the early parts of your career. Join the organization for your boss. Join the organization for its mission if you join an organization and you have a bad boss, it doesn't matter how great the organization is, the boss will have more impact on your career than the place that you started. And I think those are some lessons that I learned really early. But I will say that I was in Indonesia during the Asian financial crisis, and we lost 13% of our GDP. And I saw what that does to people who are in very fragile economic circumstances, And then, of course, I was in a nonprofit when the financial crisis happened 2009 and 2011, and I saw what that does to destabilize a nonprofit. And so this moment that we are living in, the nonprofit sector is can be destabilized, but also the communities that we're serving. We are watching hundreds of millions, billions of people being pushed back into poverty. That is what is at stake with COVID. So I'm having a little bit of a moment where there's, Harkening uh, back to what the economic crisis of 2011 did to nonprofits and to know that an organization like Warby Parker stands with us in bias, that allowed us to do what I learned to do when I was younger, which is to take risk. and so Vision Spring pushed very aggressively into a very hard pivot where we started to provide PPE to the hospitals that are on the front line. We would not have been so fast to make that move if we hadn't known that Warby Parker was at our shoulder.
0: And from a Warby Parker perspective, obviously social impact's important, but I would just say overall having a very particular persona where you have a stronger voice and you are more than a disruptor is also important. So we're less than a week away from the election and Warby Parker, not only, correct me if I'm wrong, have you given all your employees the day off to vote, which we're doing the same and hopefully others follow, but you're actively trying to Encourage more civic engagement. And you're not saying who to vote for, although I'd like to be able to say who that should be, but we can say that for another podcast. But you're saying vote. It's important.
1: For too long, it's been too difficult to vote in this country. And our democracy and our ability to vote is our cherished right. But it's not only a privilege, it's really a duty. And Democracy only works when people participate in it. So businesses and organizations can do a lot more in making it easier for people to vote, especially if the government is not going to make it as easy as humanly possible to vote. And so what are ways that businesses can make it easier to vote? Providing paid time off by providing information that's relevant to their team members depending on what state they live and work in. So deadlines around registration, around mail-in voting, around early voting, where are their polling stations, for example. Another thing that employers can do is provide paid time off to volunteer, especially during a pandemic when we've heard that there will be a shortage of poll workers because the majority of poll workers are older and we know that COVID is disproportionately dangerous for older Americans. We can hopefully encourage younger folks to become poll workers this year. One of the things that we've also done, and this was at the advice of Valerie Jarrett, who sits on the Sweet Green board with me, was to encourage our business partners and vendors to do the same. And so not only can we hopefully make it easier for our employees to vote, but we can make it easier for our vendors' employees to vote as well.
0: And I just want to talk a little bit about everyone's least favorite topic, but one that we probably talk about every day, which is COVID-19. As we record this, vaccines are being rolled out in the United States. When we post this, God knows how many people will have had the vaccine, which hopefully as many as humanly possible, especially frontline workers and those who are compromised. Can you talk a little bit about how Vision Spring pivoted amidst not just the murder of George Floyd, but at the same time concurrent with that, the pandemic, and you had to rethink how you service and meet the needs of your communities around the world?
2: So the pivot for us was a big leap of faith because what happened, we all went into lockdown in the middle of March. So it was rolling New York, and then Africa, India, Bangladesh for us. And there are a couple of us in the organization who'd actually been in the world of emergency response before. And a couple of us that had actually worked the Ebola outbreak in Western Africa. And for us, this felt like a rapid onset emergency that was unprecedented in its scale, but it had that energy to it. And I used to work in the provision of medical commodities prior to joining Vision Spring, And we just did an asset check and said, we've got a supply chain that originates in China and India. We serve 350 hospitals that are gonna find themselves on the front line. We have 200 team members who know how to work in community and mobilize and do counseling and communication. And a couple of us have worked emergency response before so we can help orchestrate a pivot. And kind of most importantly, culturally, Vision Springs, a very can do team, and the people really didn't want to sit on their hands. We're very mission oriented. And so people didn't want to sort of sit out the crisis. And really, in the first couple of days, I got a note from the Warby Parker team that said, This is going to be really crazy and it's a very uncertain time, but we're with you. And we had a couple of donors in particular in the early days who just said, We're beside you. Whatever you plan to do, we're beside you. And it gave us so much flexibility to be creative. So what we did was we retooled our whole supply chain and we set a goal of delivering personal protective equipment. So masks, goggles, gowns, to gloves, to the frontline hospitals. We set an initial goal of delivering a million units. We got our first boxes out the door during lockdown. I'm really proud to say that we're now over 2.5 million units of personal protective equipment that have gone to 157 organizations, community health workers, primary care clinics, eye hospitals, and we're going to keep doing that into 2021 until the vaccine really takes away some of the urgency and the market comes in around us. But we would never have been able to adapt that fast had we had restricted money. And what's so important about how Warby and Vision Spring have our partnership is that Warby's buy a pair, give a pair is not giving Vision Spring product. It's giving us unrestricted capital that is equivalent to the eyeglasses that allows us to really advance our mission. And they trust us to deliver and perform and we are reimbursed on that performance. And so Warby pivoted it with us. So we went from buy a pair, give a pair to buy a pair, protect a health worker.
0: I love that. I mean, I think also the notion of capital is fungible and flexible and should be allocated towards the need in that moment, not just the need in what it was last week. You make it sound really easy, but it's not because I've done a lot of work with nonprofits through COVID. and their number one priority and their number one concern is, oh my God, how do we not only just keep the lights on and pay our staff, but also continue to serve the community that we have a commitment to. So they're not thinking about necessarily how do we serve these communities in different ways and new ways, because you also have like that flight or fight kind of survival instinct that sometimes can take over. And I'm impressed that you're able to kind of dampen that or put it to the side. And like you said, not just retool, but repurpose your purpose. That's incredible.
2: Thanks for that. It was really like a mission 2.0. We will chart and have been charting our path back to glasses. So we're very clear about the connection between the two. So just a point of emphasis, and Warby Parker is really well known for its customer experience in the nonprofit space. We tend to talk about people as beneficiaries as if they're the recipients of something. Beneficiary is a bad word in the Vision Spring lexicon. We really focus on customers because there's a value proposition. And we need to come to communities with something that is worth their time and their money.
0: Yeah. And beneficiary also takes away the notion that there's a mutuality involved.
2: Exactly, that there's decision making and discretion on their part, and that we have to bring something that is worth a value to them. And it really then puts us in service to the communities. And so that customer focus, though, was at the center of our pivot. So we have remained focused on weaving communities on artisan clusters, on the transportation hubs in the early days of COVID. We focused on hygiene and food and educational materials for the truck drivers that were still moving around India during lockdown and basically being the lifeline for the world's largest lockdown. And that customer focus is what allowed us to basically listen to what the communities needed and to stay focused on our target area. So being rooted in our values, one of which is to constantly adapt and relentlessly improve, being rooted in our customers and committed to the particular segments, drivers, educators, and people who have a livelihoods and you have a livelihoods base that has a high requirement for near vision correction. That's what allowed us to really be successful in the pivot.
0: As someone who has been involved in public health, and has lived in other countries and worked in other countries and other communities, and who has an aperture that's much wider than the average American, More, much, much, much wider. What do you think the two or three top lessons we've all collectively learned, whether or not we want to, I say the collective collectively, not me, but we want to acknowledge it or not. What do you think those two or three lessons are now, hopefully coming out of this pandemic, knowing that we're gonna have pandemics in the future?
2: Well, the first is that masks work. <laughs> So we know that, the numbers know that. I'm really proud to say that Vision Spring has championed masks since the very beginning. Masks for All was one of our very first initiatives because we work in slum communities where social distancing is just not really feasible because of the density of the population. So I'll take a quick segue here and just say that we started working with the artisan communities where we have been doing vision screening and we were watching a lot of their livelihoods get wiped out as they weren't able to produce their textiles for market. And so we started commissioning cloth masks from the artisans who are wearing our glasses for distribution in the door-to-door campaigns and also in our vision camps. So the door-to-door campaign brings me to the second one, which is messaging consistency really matters. There are some countries, Ghana and India in particular, who have done an exceptional job at the national level from the top down in terms of Public health messaging and that consistency matters. The other is public health infrastructure. So, the United States has for 30 years, we have not invested in public health infrastructure in the US. When there was a measles outbreak before this, people were sending in stats from hospitals on fax machines to the CDC. It's really crazy that the United States public health infrastructure, the data systems, the predictive analytics aren't there. And so, If COVID's taught us anything, it's taught us that we have to invest for the long term in the infrastructure. And it's not surprising that the countries that have experienced pandemics before, whether it's in Africa, those who have dealt with Ebola or Marburg disease, and those that have dealt with SARS and other things in East Asia, they're doing well because they have learned some of the lessons the hard way the first time around. And we really haven't. I think the other thing that's going to come out over time is that. There are some countries that don't have mortality rates that are as high as ours. And the United States has a high mortality rate because of the comorbidities. We don't have a healthy nation. We have an adult population that has a lot of diabetes and hypertension and high body mass indexes. And those are highly correlated with mortality associated with COVID. And so we have a lot of work to do to have a health system that focuses on health. And doesn't focus on sickness.
0: I mean, there's so many other things. I would even add. I don't have the level of expertise you do, but I would just say, not raiding the home of a data scientist who's just trying to do her job and provide facts to the public that would be helpful. The other thing is, this is going to sound strange, but I do think one positive coming out of all of this is that there's an even stronger and brighter light on those who live in the margins, as well as folks in the black and brown communities and people of color who have disproportionately been impacted as well as hourly wage workers and others by this. And I'm hopeful that we never lose sight of that. In addition to the other issues with regards to our public health, um, the health of our nation and our infrastructure, because I think it gives us kind of a new opportunity to revisit these systemic issues, pandemic or no pandemic.
2: hundred percent. I mean, the impact of the disease and the impact and the economic fallout as a result of the recession and all of the joblessness is devastating for low-income communities. And it's worldwide, but nowhere is that more clear than in the U.S. and in our own backyard. It's stark.
0: It is, and even starker is the fact that we now have five people in the U.S. who have reached centa-billionaire status. I just heard this this morning. Now, look, some of them have been incredibly philanthropic and unbelievable when it comes to addressing some of these issues, but it's hard for me to understand how people can get wealthier in a pandemic when you have twenty one million people out of work just in the u s alone but I guess that's for a podcast for another day but it that's an interesting segue to kind of the
2: I will say there is an issue there of. I'll take it back to Warby here for a minute, which right. is that there are some companies that have been philanthropic from the start, and there are some who have not. And I'm going to just throw Amazon under the bus here because started on day one, and it is in the DNA of the company, and it is what brings people to Warby Parker in terms of wanting to join the company. People feel good afterwards after they buy their glasses, and they see that note that says, thanks to you, somebody else is going to get a pair of glasses in need. And it's genuinely authentic. And so I think a lot of people, when they're in the startup space, have ideas, but they can be quite gimmicky. And the reality is, there's a long history in corporate social responsibility done well and corporate social responsibility done badly. And we're really proud to be partnering with Warby because they're an example of corporate social responsibility done well.
0: And it's not just Warby, right? I mean, obviously, I love Warby. I'm a customer. I'm a fanboy. I have great respect for their founders. But you also, or and I should say, you also have partnerships with other companies as well. Can you just briefly touch on that?
2: VisionSpring works with about 32 other companies. Many of them are in India. And one of the things that we're super excited about is bringing companies into collaboration. So often what happens is corporations will have a flagship program and it's very easy for companies to kind of play in their own sandbox and say, this is our signature thing. But Warby, Levi Strauss, Williams-Sonoma, VF, which is behind brands like North Face and Vans, and Target are in an alliance together with us called the Clear Vision Workplace Alliance. And what we are doing with funding that has been matched by the U.S. government through USAID is we are screening the vision of 500,000 factory workers and and mostly garment and textile in India, Bangladesh, and Vietnam, and making sure that they're getting the eyeglasses that they need to stay in their jobs and to do their jobs well. because what we find is that at age 35, forty, 45, we all know it, you start to need reading glasses. Well, these people are masters of their craft at that time. If you think about the artisan who's producing these incredible handwoven fabrics or the embroidery, and there's no reason for that person not to be able to earn an income, mostly women, 80% women for their families for a decade or more to come. And so all they need is this intervention of a pair of eyeglasses. And so it's really exciting because each of the companies has brought their unique competency to the alliance in terms of access to the factories, the relationships that they have with the factory leadership and the influence in the industry associations And then with Warby, Warby's underwriting all of the eyeglasses that the factory workers are wearing. So we're super excited for that and think it's a pretty unprecedented example of the power of collaboration.
0: Neil? When the pandemic hit nine months ago, what was it that went through your mind and your management team's mind? And what is it that Warby Parker did to respond and is doing today?
1: I would say the first thing is we started thinking about COVID-19 really in, I think it was around November of 2019, and we really thought of it more as a supply chain risk. This was a virus that was impacting China, and it was like other coronaviruses, like SARS may go to other countries in East Asia, and we sourced some of our frames from East Asia. We source our frames from China, Japan, and Italy. So we were really preparing, how do we mitigate risk? We started to pull up some orders to get more inventory stateside in case there were supply chain disruptions. We started to monitor it more closely. We then started to see the virus spread to Europe, which was different from the SARS outbreaks of years past. Of course, as I just mentioned, we have some frame production. In Italy. So that certainly raised some alarms. Then it became abundantly clear that was going to come to the US and this was indeed going to be a pandemic. And from a business standpoint, that risk changed from supply chain disruption to now a major disruption to the core of the business and perhaps a consumer disruption and a consumer risk. Now, as leaders, what is our number one job? It's to keep your team safe. Now, as a CEO in the US conducting e-commerce, you usually don't need to think that much about sort of the safety of your employees. Yes, we think about safety in terms of our manufacturing facilities. We have an optical lab in Slotesburg, New York, which is about an hour outside of New York City, where we cut the lenses and insert them into the frames. Anybody that's done anything with manufacturing knows that safety is First and foremost, you have to watch out for slip and falls, for anything, depending on the machinery that you have. And then, of course, having over 100 stores, one of the other big risks is violence in stores, in particular active shooting scenarios. So our store teams go through active shooter trainings, and it's really upsetting and horrible the number of active shooter incidences that happen in the U.S., including even false alarms. And that our teams very regularly have to shelter in place and protect themselves and customers in our stores just because this is happening every day in the U.S. So I just use those as examples of that was typically how we thought about sort of life safety or health issues previously. Then the pandemic comes. We know that there's a tsunami approaching our shores, but we had no idea of how widespread it was, how tall that tsunami was. We just knew that it was bad. So we just worked on trying to learn as much as possible, reaching out to colleagues at other companies in East Asia and in Europe, trying to learn as much as possible about how this virus is transmitted. How are we going to change the way that we operate? The first thought was, hey, this virus is transmitted similar to a flu. So we spent a lot of time educating our teams on hand washing, As we always do actually. The team sometimes makes fun of me because I'm so adamant that everybody get a flu vaccine every year. And then we hired experts. We hired epidemiologists, infectious disease experts to educate our leadership team, and then do also fireside chats with our entire organization because we knew that we'd be able to put in place safety protocols that would keep Warby Parker employees safe within the four walls of Warby Parker, but viruses, just as they know no national boundaries, they don't know work-life boundaries either. So we had to make sure that our team was properly educated to keep themselves safe when they were outside of work. So one of the epidemiologists that we engaged with sat on the White House COVID task force, consulted for the MBA and other organizations, and we put together protocols in place, such as temperature checks and symptoms checking before entering our optical lab, re-looking at the production line to ensure that we had at least six feet distance and social distancing, evaluating our HVAC systems and ensuring there was good ventilation and fresh air intake. And then the other big thing is that we immediately closed our stores. We were one of the first national retailers to close all of our stores because we didn't have enough information to feel confident that we could operate stores safely. So that was Friday the
0: 13th in March. I remember that day because that's when basically the rest of America, at least on the coasts, decided to go work from home indefinitely.
1: We also closed our offices in New York and in Nashville. Thankfully, we had been preparing for this moment. We do most of our work in the cloud, but for a couple of weeks leading up to that, we had employees taking their laptops home almost every day, testing out systems and being prepared that we may close the office. Then one of the questions that most retailers were facing is, well, what do you do with your store teams? Do you furlough them? Do you lay them off because they're unable to work? we weren't going to do that. We wanted to ensure that our store teams continued to get paid, had the financial support that they needed. So we continued to pay our store teams, even though our stores were closed. We actually waited over five weeks until the CARES Act was passed. And it was abundantly clear that there was going to be elevated unemployment insurance, including that federal stipend. And we did a whole analysis on what our employees would get if we did furlough them for a short period of time would they make as much or more if they were getting paid by Warby Parker and we had to do this analysis state by state because unemployment insurance is provided by by the state once we felt comfortable that our team members would indeed make comparable income then we did furlough a portion of our store team members but we also guaranteed that if for some reason, unemployment insurance didn't
0: cover their full wages, we would make them good through July. So that's an important point, because we have worked with a couple of clients who are retailers as well through that process. And they had different and very similar approaches to you, though I would say that yours was probably the most generous that I've heard in a long time. I found the biggest challenge with the clients and the brands I was working with is just communicating what you just said, because it's complicated. And the average store worker, it has nothing to do with intelligence, it's just to do with life experience and kind of what their expertise is. They don't understand these things. They don't know what unemployment insurance is. They've never heard the word furlough before until we had to explain it to them. And it's not like you can just send them an email and explain it. You have to have town halls, you have to have calls, you have to have Q&As, you need to make your HR people available.
1: Absolutely. We spent a lot of time educating our team members on what our strategy was, what our plan was, and then also provided workshops on how to actually apply for unemployment. And I can tell you that certain states deliberately make it a lot more difficult to apply for unemployment than others. For example, being unemployed in the state of Florida is far worse than being unemployed. In other states like New York, it takes longer for your unemployment claim to get processed and for you to start getting paid, which is a real shame, especially in the midst of a pandemic. But we did a lot of workshops, a lot of town halls to educate our team members. And we were doing both how to protect yourself financially, but then also how to protect yourself from a health perspective in which we were bringing Outside experts to talk through how the virus was transmitted. The fact that this was through droplets and the importance of mask wearing and the importance of being in well ventilated areas, and that this virus was primarily being transmitted indoors. So I hope, and it sure seems like the work that we did helped protect our team members. Now, as the pandemic got worse, but then we learned a lot more about it. We were able to reopen up stores with safety protocols. And then we created dashboards internally to monitor cases, both new case counts and testing positivity rates, hospitalizations, the amount of the capacity of ICU beds by zip code, by county, by state. And that informed different modes of operating and different, even testing protocols that we put in place. So we've put in place ways for our employees to get tested for COVID. And we have found some asymptomatic cases. Thankfully, we have no evidence of any community spread within any Warby Parker facility, whether it was our manufacturing facility or our stores. And that it makes me feel like we did the right thing here and we have been able to keep our team members safe within what we can control, which is the Warby Parker environment.
0: And the other thing, I'm not speaking for you, but it's a prompt, I suppose. As much as I love your stores and the feel and the brand, it feels like a library and it's very bespoke and it's very warm and not intimidating and not judgy. I mean, I feel like I'm walking into like my house, but better. I also love the fact that I can virtually try on a pair of glasses through your app. And I love the fact that you launched this program where I'm butchering all this because I'm not on brand for you, but (laughs) you basically can send me five or six pairs of glasses to try on and then I can then send them back to you. I can decide which ones I like in terms of the look and the feel. And that's an amazing pivot. Again, you're a digitally native brand that then went retail, but I think that's in your genes. I think that was really smart. Absolutely. We definitely benefited from
1: being... An online business primarily, and the fact that so many of our customers could still shop with us, even though our stores were closed, that they could download the Warby Parker app and do a true-to-scale virtual try-on, that they could use our home try-on program and select five pairs of glasses. We shipped them to them free of cost. So we actually saw growth this year because of that. And then, of course, once we reopened stores, we had also done a lot of tech work to make that experience as contactless as possible, whether it was contactless payments or given that we've been limiting traffic into the stores, we created a text based wait list. So if you were waiting to come into the store because we were limiting the number of people to ensure social distancing in the store, you didn't have to wait in line. You could go walk around and we would text you when it was your turn. And then, of course, doing basic things like washing every pair of glasses before and after one tries it on. So those frames are being cleaned twice in between every customer trying them on in-store.
0: It's two times more than I clean my frames probably at home. (laughs) Last COVID question, and this is one I don't know if you can answer because I'm not sure anybody's an answer yet. Do you believe that companies should mandate that their employees are vaccinated as a condition for employment once the vaccine is widely available?
1: I think mandates are always challenging. I think you need to see what the research and what the data says. I know that I even with things less serious that don't involve life and death, I don't try and mandate anything. I try to convince and influence people to make the right and informed decision. We don't mandate flu vaccines, for example, every year, but we talk about it a lot and show people what the difference is between having one and not, and the amount of days off, and how it's important to protect your coworkers and your family, and then how do we make it widely available. We make sure our insurance is covering flu vaccines. We ensure that we provide it and have somebody come to the office to make it as easy and convenient as possible. So my hope is that everybody at Warby Parker and of course everybody across the country wants to get this vaccine. I know that there's certainly some conspiracy theories that will be spread and there'll be an anti-vaxxer contingent here. And I think that it's important for leaders across the nation to stand up for truth and for research and what actually improves people's health and reduces risk. And we know
0: that this vaccine will do that. You're feeling like we have to rely more on our powers of persuasion showing them not just the science and the data and the facts, but showing them that you're doing it, your family's doing it, the management team's doing it, your supervisors are doing it the head of the stores versus it being compulsory. At least that's what you're feeling right now. Yeah. I think for certain companies, if I'm in a hospital, probably a different story. Different. Or an airline, maybe. I think it's different with level of engagement. But I appreciate having you on and everything at Warby Parker has done to be an inspiration to so many around the world, as well as other folks who are starting companies that have social impact. And I'll just call it human impact. I think we should just no longer call it social impact because what we're talking about are human beings. Those who are in need, those who are marginalized, they're insecure in multiple ways. And I think that the model that you've created as a digitally native brand that now is more of a mainstream brand, but still has an edge and a progressiveness to it that I think we all, both as a consumer myself, but also as a professional, admire and appreciate. So thank you. And I can't wait to continue to watch your ascension, your success, your partnership with VisionSpring, which is admirable. And I think hopefully it'll be a Harvard business case study one day. If it isn't, you've heard it here, it should be. And I should also just say go Jumbos because you're a Tufts grad and... We have a member of our family, my son, who's a jumbo, and I just think great things come out of Tufts. Yeah, yeah, you went to Wharton, fine, but we're just going to say great things come out of Tufts University as well.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Thank you so much
0: for having me. Thanks, Neil. Be well. Thanks, Ella. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quitkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com.